Hi, my name is Tom Johnson. You're listening to a podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. Today, I'm talking with Andrew Davis. He's a former technical writer who has gone into recruiting long ago, and he specializes in helping companies, primarily in the Silicon Valley area, find highly technical writers, uh, often for jobs that involve APIs and other developer documentation. Um, Andrew, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Maybe, uh, did I get that right um, as far as the introduction? You got that absolutely right. Yes, Tom. Thank you for the opportunities to and, chat this evening. So what kind of recruiting, I mentioned that you, you recruit for highly technical positions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is it just technical writers or do you branch out into other types of recruiting as well? The question is perhaps what I can do versus what I am asked to do. What I can do is supply technical communicators of any kind for any kind of technology-related project. What I find most demand for are technical communicators for very sophisticated projects requiring extensive subject matter expertise. So companies pay a premium for a recruiter when they want when they want somebody to know what they're doing to understand them perhaps even to be one of them and to to use that paratrooper analogy to land running to to have a very much faster launch speed and ultimately they they count on that saving them money so what i do day in and day out is seek needles and haystacks for companies that are determined to have really technical tech writers on their teams, technical trainers, sometimes technical course developers, um, seldom editors, never indexers, seldom production people, occasionally XML toolsmiths and, and data migration experts and very seldom graphics and illustration types. So I focus primarily on the software development world, less so on hardware, less so on networking, less than that on healthcare and uh, medical devices. And nothing, no, no demand at all in my realm for utilities and government and transportation and other areas where I know there's work for tech writers just doesn't come to me. So I want to jump kind of straight into uh, the API doc um, part of this this focus. I mean, the, a lot of these podcasts I'm trying to do right now are API doc related. And I know you recruit a lot for API doc related positions. So what in, in the context of, of these companies who are trying to hire API doc writers, what kinds of programming languages or skills are these companies really looking for? They're looking for two kinds of documentation. Typically, they want and need, in order to, to recognize revenue, they need an API reference, which is um, a cookbook. Well, no, it's not a cookbook. They, they want an API reference and they want tutorials. Tutorials are harder to write. They, are, they require a very strong understanding of subject matter, um, the subject matter involved, and how developers are going to use the product. Um, API references are 
more formulaic. Um, they can often be put together in a, a Q&A format with, um, with engineers. Tutorials need to be slightly more creative, and the tech writer needs to know a great deal more about about almost everything, the tools and the audience and the environment to, to create that, that t you know, short time to first hello world, TTFHW um, is, is an acronym that I'm hearing increasingly, to get the customers, to get the users productive with a developer-oriented product. I, I, see uh, a, I see a lot of job descriptions and they say, uh, as far as the requirements go, candidate must know uh, at least one programming language, such as Java, C++, or, some, or Python or something. Exactly. And, and I'm always kind of curious about these job descriptions because I know that I, I doubt that their product uh, involves all of those languages. Um, are, they, are they just kind of looking for somebody with some familiarity with programming, or are they really trying to find somebody who already knows that technical programming language that they need? In my experience, they want all they can get. They want somebody who's just like them, who knows languages that they find themselves using every day. They're hiring in their image to a large extent, Will they expect the person to be as effective, as efficient writing that code as they are? No, never. But do they want to have the ability to say, here is, here is a bunch of code, extract what you think is going to be appropriate for a code example, and then genericize it somewhat and document it? That gives them the opportunity to continue focusing on code development product development, while the tech writer makes sense of some of the some of the code and extracts what they know to be appropriate. So do you need to, do, to be able to program Python or Java? No. Do you know, need to know the principles? Yes. Do you need to know what will compile and what won't, what, what, what works and what's extraneous? Yes. Can you get that through trial and error? You can. Um, I recommend that you, you try to, to become as technical, as, as familiar with these products as you can, and to say, here are my limits, um, to bring them questions to which there are yes and no answers rather than meaning of life answers. Um, and they tend to respect that much more than, than somebody who is merely a scribe who says, well, I can learn anything as long as somebody teaches me. They don't have the time to teach. There is no technical training going on out there. That's, that's done on your own time. Now, when a company puts together a, a list of these requirements, I just want to drill into this uh, programming language thing a, a little bit more. Um, are they expecting a high level of proficiency in a language, or do they are they expecting like a a technical writer level of, of familiarity. I mean, a lot of technical writers, I did a recent survey asking what programming languages technical writers know. And a lot of people put, you know, minimal knowledge of Java or, you know, working knowledge of, of this and that language. So people are, are, 
I mean, a lot of people have gone through beginning tutorials, how to's, online uh, courses, but really, you know, if somebody puts Java as a skill on a tech writer resume, it's a lot different from a developer who puts Java as a skill on their resume. I mean, a developer's got to be able to create production level code if they have that. Whereas a tech writer, I think not that, so much. yeah. What's your sense of that? Am I off base? You are not off base. They understand that you are not a developer, that you're not efficient at creating that code, but they, they want you, they want you to have the concepts down. They want to be able to quiz you in an interview and have you, have you understand the question and either be able to tell them exactly where you find the answer or give them your best best shot at that. And, and here's why. They are hiring by committee. And it's extremely risky for a company to hire somebody who doesn't work out. So it's a consensus-based choice. They are having software engineers interview you, along with other tech writers and project managers and QA people and so forth. They want everybody to be able to agree. So the the requirement that you program in Java, that's not as serious as it would be for a software developer. But if you shrug and say, I don't have to know that in the interview, or that's never been relevant, I always get code samples from the engineers, they're going to look at that as a potential time sink, as a potential risk, as a potential indicator that you are not sufficiently motivated to get stuff done on your own. So you need to meet them more than halfway. I recommend taking courses. I recommend doing homework. And I recommend an energetic and uh, authentic commitment to getting more technical this is certainly you are certainly no longer allowed to say not my department when it comes to these technologies what about help authoring tools um, in the api doc scene uh, companies are looking to fill these more technical roles are they looking for framemaker flare Ditta, any particular um, trend of authoring tools or do they not really care about that you asked help authoring tools. Um, you, if you just mean authoring tools, I, I can comment on those. I don't see a great deal of of use for specifically help authoring tools. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've got to tell you, FrameMaker has turned into a liability. It is the equivalent of the dinosaur in most software development environments, either because it's a... It's a silo, and they want the opportunity to contribute content themselves, and nobody's going to buy themselves a license to FrameMaker just for that opportunity or learn that tool. Um, I think there are some organizations, primarily mid-cap and large-cap companies, where there are five-plus tech writers on a team where structured authoring is, is appropriate and those companies are certainly going to want you to understand what XML can do. And if, you're, if you've implemented a DITA solution before, hooray, 
you you will you will become more productive. <laughs> it is a different kind of of offering from narrative or tutorial writing. Um, at the other end, and I, I'm thinking now of open source companies that are lean and where content is coming from multiple quarters. They want really lean tools, and I'm seeing a huge push for stripped-down tools. I have in mind Markdown and you know, GitHub for, for your repository, and um, as little infrastructure on the tools front as possible. Um, halfway, you know, if, if you're creating topic-based content, I see Madcap Flare running away with the game. Um, certainly BD Framemaker. If you're thinking about structured content, Oxygen is, is the, the product to beat. Um, I, I see, I see Xmetal and ArborText and Authorit, you know, trying to, trying to be part of that battle, but almost everyone goes with Oxygen, in my experience. So, uh, the question of whether to uh, kind of beef up your structured authoring data kind of skill set in your authoring tools seems like it depends on the type of company you're targeting. Bigger yep. companies probably are more, uh, they embrace the kind of structured authoring model. Smaller companies probably want the lean collaborative model. Is that is that uh, on target or not? Precisely. So what, now the follow-up question how do sal how do salaries compare between smaller companies versus larger companies um, in terms of the same sort of API doc role? Smaller companies require you to wear more hats. They are not forty hour weeks. Um, I don't think any companies getting mere forty hour weeks forty hour a week from their employees. Um, but at younger companies. There's, and especially open source companies, there's this distinct difference where the documentation sells the product. Um, at open source companies, the products are free, and the documentation and the training and the implementation isn't. And if the documentation doesn't draw a customer or a prospect in and give them that satisfaction that they are going to get productive, productive quickly, then the documentation has failed to sell the product and the product does not sell. No amount of sales can overcome bad doc in the open source world. So these people earn more. And I've seen young companies hiring one, maybe two tech writers not hesitate to pay prices that are 25% above where they were two years ago for individual contributors, and I'll put numbers to that. Um, 130K, not unusual. 135K, about the top I've seen for individual contributors. I know some ex-developers who have commanded 10K more than that, but they already knew that team, and they were program entities, and it was a simple sign-here model when the person was productive. Um, enterprise companies, older companies with more people, doing with more infrastructure and perhaps fewer hours per week required, the same person is going to be making 10 to 15K less. Hmm. 
You know, I, I want to come back to a point you made about how documentation sells the product for a lot of these open source companies or just uh, web-based companies. I think that's a really interesting, uh, it's an interesting trend. And it definitely, I think Scott Abel hits upon the, the convergence of marketing with techcom and so forth. And you can definitely see that there if the techcom is selling the product. But a lot of these, a lot of these sites that are really, you know, they sizzle, they, they're really uh, snazzy, they're modern. Uh, look at uh, uh, Slate, Box, uh, anything really that is um, a popular web product. It seems like these companies have a front-end developer who's like building these sites from scratch um, and really, you know, it's not, it's not like a, a $50 WordPress theme they're just throwing up there. Do, te do technical writers actually create these sites or do they work hand-in-hand -hand with front-end designers to, to build them? I know of no tech writers who are sufficiently expert at creating these sites, certainly from scratch. Um, I, I find it very difficult. And so when a client asks for a website developer who can do the, the, the interaction coding, can do the behind the, behind the interface interaction coding, um, those people are not technical writers. Those people are codesmiths. They are UX and, and, and UI designers. Um, so no, the tech writers stay in the land of written communication. Um, they may have insights into interactivity and optimizing the user experience. But in my experience, most of them are wordsmiths first and foremost, and, and they are my target candidate base. You also mentioned um, software or, or technical writers who are former software engineers. This is always a, a curious kind of species of, of, of uh, professional out there, and one that uh, one would assume would really dominate in the API doc space where programming language uh, familiarity is important. How how many tech writers, or let's say, yeah, tech writers who are former software developers, how many of these types of individuals are floating around the, the valley here? Are there tons? Are they really scarce? Is there... Uh, there are tons. There are tons, and, and tech writing is a logical second or fallback career for software engineers, especially if they've passed a certain age and are subject to a lot of ageism. Um, it's also easier. A lot of these people enjoy writing about products that they understand intuitively and, and keeping the company of, of people who are creating the products without being as stressed as those creating, creating the code. Um, I don't think it's required that you be an ex-software engineer in order to write API references and SDK and tutorials and so forth, but it certainly helps. Um, many of these people can be faulted for not writing all that well, and sometimes the the skills of a of a liberal artist can enhance the the flow, the consistency, the the effectiveness of what they write. But that's certainly not a requisite. And when the hiring is being done by engineers, 
they are more likely to warm to one of their own. So they will hire somebody who's coded for a living before because that person gets their priorities and certainly understands their audience. Just in general, maybe uh, looking at the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 people you placed in highly technical roles, about what percentage were former software engineers? I'm just kind of curious to know, um, can somebody with a humanities background really compete and excel in this API doc space, or is this really the realm of former programmers? It is not exclusively the realm of former programmers. I, the last 10 or 15 people I placed, probably 50% were ex-engineers or tech support or, or systems analysts, people who had been in the code working closely with the product. Um, certainly, it's better to have been a software engineer when you're applying for a software engineering-related documentation job, but it's not mandatory. Uh, the highest paid tech writers I know are English majors who are really smart and really dedicated and really good at convincing the clients to hire them as well as to impress those clients with with their product. They write better, they organize better, they are they have better interpersonal skills. There's a little less Asperger's going on. Um, among the people who who are people people um, first and technology people second but you know it, it's it depends on the client I can't generalize too wildly and, and say I mean, if you tell me what the product is and tell me who the audience is I'll, I'll give you a much better idea of who they're, who they're likely to hire but <laughs> In general, it does not hurt to have a software engineering background. And if you don't have a software engineering background, it's all is not lost. Take some courses. Um, we want to show these people initiative, interest in the subject material, and willingness to, to be self-motivated. Catalyst, you self-catalyze. You are self-driven. Um, if you come across as passive and say, I want to write API documentation, teach me, they'll shrug and say, next. But if you say, I want to write API documentation, it seems to be the growing trend. And so I took these courses and did these sample portfolio samples. And I have these references who testified to my ability to get in there and master really complicated material. And here's the URL for my, my documentation samples. When can we talk? You're going to get a nod as quickly as an ex-software developer will. I've heard some uh, people remark that um, basically as far as job trends go, API and developer-related tech writing jobs are exploding while GUI-based or much less technical jobs are declining. What's your take on on this? Are, are these... Uh, GUI jobs on the decline or are technical writers in demand across all levels of skill? Okay. Well, you're, you're speaking to somebody who sees a great deal more demand for API documentation. I, I'm being circumspect here. I, I'm one man. I'm a blind man groping the elephant. Is it a snake? Is it a tree trunk? Is it a big leaf? I don't know. 
um, the, the authoritative answer. I will tell you that from my experience for the last 20 years, end user and system admin documentation jobs have mostly disappeared from Silicon Valley. And the people who do that kind of work are wondering who moved their cheese. And it is really upsetting to see these people who are great communicators and good thinkers and hard workers and talented in ways that aren't valued right now, like project management and and Marcom work and generally getting along with people and perhaps even building teams. These people are struggling. They're cutting their rates. They're putting up with less. They're, putting, they're dealing with longer commutes. Their lifestyles are definitely deteriorating. Now, if you ask me how and why, I will say you know, it started in 2001 when the sky fell in Silicon Valley. And companies started saying, hey, this is a globalized market. What can the rest of the globe do to help us gain value? And a lot of the end user and system admin jobs got offshored. And some came back and then got offshore again. And increasingly, that's the norm. I would say any venture-funded technology company these days is not permitted by their investors to hire tech writers domestically unless those technical writers are dealing with that company's direct IP, their, their crown jewels, their intellectual property. Those tech writers that are able to document the APIs and create developer tutorials, they get hired in Silicon Valley. People who write the rest of the content, they are co-located with development teams offshore. And I will always offer the following three or four pieces of advice to tech writers who are finding it difficult. Let's say, first question, are you really interested in writing for the market that pays best right now, which is software development? If you're not, great. But don't don't compete in it. If you are, get technical. Get even more technical. Second, cut your living expenses because there are going to be fallow periods and this business is seasonal. Typically, November, December, January are slow months for hiring. In my experience, end user and software, you know, system admin, network admin, documentation jobs, they happen almost by mistake when somebody gets sick or somebody's miscalculated on the project or somebody failed to plan. Ooh, we need a tech writer. We need that person to write some install documentation or some end user stuff. Great. You know, you go to Craigslist or you go to your favorite recruiter and you hunt for such a tech writer and someone gets lucky. But that job lasts three months. It doesn't turn into a full-time job and it certainly doesn't pay as well as it did 15 years ago. So that's, that's a long answer to a short question. But yes, these people, I don't know, I'll just go ahead and say it. I think they're doomed in Silicon Valley. They need to get out of tech into biotech or government or transportation or healthcare or law jobs that won't be offshored quite so soon but you know even then they're looking at maybe more five more years of stability and then those jobs too will go offshore what about uh remote versus on-site contracts i think 
uh, there's this idea that a lot of people have, and, and it's certainly something in my mind. I would love to have a remote job uh, paying you know, 100 plus K and then go move to uh, some very low cost state, uh, Kansas or something. And well, I don't know, that's probably not a great example, but somewhere inexpensive and just work remotely. Is that is that a false idea? Do people really want you on site? I mean, there's been a trend with big companies who force their company, force their their policies uh, to uh, with workers to be on site. Are you thinking of Yahoo? <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you, Marissa. Um, okay, the the trend has to do on site is preferred in many, many companies. And I've heard it justified many ways, like, you know, we're bad communicators. We don't want to pick up pick up the phone or send an email or give you any notice that we're about to call a meeting. Um, some justify it as we're agile. Everyone needs to be at the stand-up and everyone needs to be there in person or they will get ignored. I've also heard it justified as we need to see you to know you're working. And that's just plain out control freak, you know, motives, but they, they get their way and they often, they often decide that somebody who's even better than the local talent, but is working remote will not get the job. Um, here's how to solve that puzzle. You need to make your location transparent to them. And if they want you on site, you give them a certain amount of time on site. Now, you cannot be the final arbiter on how much time is enough time. You can discuss this without requiring them to commit during the interview. But if you have come up to speed with a company's product and you've proven yourself culturally compatible and you are productive, you've proven yourself productive, then... I don't know of a single company that's going to say, be here just because. It's, it, they, they don't dare anymore. This is a globalized workforce. They know themselves that if they were hiring, they would not tolerate demand for fully on-site. I ask this hiring, question of hiring managers every single day. You want this person on-site. You want this person using your tools. You want this person under your thumb. Tell me. If the roles were reversed, would you accept this job? And I say, are you kidding? Not a chance. I would never, ever work on the conditions I'm demanding somebody else accept. So they're covering their tails. And they want to, this is loss avoidance, risk aversion. Um, they want very much to have that source of failure kind of... <laughs> stopped and, 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 and blocked. Also, their management is saying, you know, if you hire the wrong person, it's on your head. This is a career-limiting move. So they're fearful. There's, a, there's way too much fear behind every hiring decision. Um, that said, I've never found a perfectly qualified candidate, not 100%. That's best I can hope for from the job descriptions that I put out, that you see elsewhere, 80%. One question I I sometimes get is how people can 
relocate from out of state. For example, let's say let's say that you're listening to this podcast and you're a tech writer living in Montana and you're like, "Holy smokes, there are no tech writing jobs here. I got to I've got to move to Silicon Valley." Uh, so you submit your resume and everybody looks at and sees Montana. You know, I'm not going to fly this guy out. Um, how do people make these moves uh, from out of state into Silicon Valley um, effectively? I mean, do they just have to uh, vacation, or take a vacation on their own time, come out here and put up shop in a motel for two weeks, uh, interviewing their brains out? Or do they hope that somebody uh, foots the bill and flies them out for an interview? There's no one answer to that, but the the scenario number one is much more likely. You typically um, say, I'm going to be local to you on these dates, or I can, I can come out um, on this much notice, and they won't mind. Um, I recommend to candidates who are we're interested in moving here. I mean, not not just to convince a client that they can work on site for a couple weeks and then go home, but who are actually relocating, um, are willing to relocate. That they get local phone numbers, ghost phone numbers through Vonage or some other service if that's appropriate, and list a local address. That being the address of friends with whom they can stay and so forth. You don't want to give a know-nothing recruiter the opportunity to say, oh, you're not local, therefore no. Um, if you are willing to get yourself out here and so forth, your location should truly be transparent. So I recommend a name, an email address, and a cell phone number on a resume. If you want to supply a city and zip, great, but if it's not local, it's a liability. So you come, you come out here and you couch surf or you B&B, Airbnb, you can do anything that gets you, gets you in front of the client that needs your services, or the hiring manager that needs your services. It's not inexpensive. There's no cheap way to do it. But the, the alternative is to spend months and months and months not earning and not hearing back. Andrew, these, this has been a great conversation. You have the most insight of any uh, you know, tech com recruiter or other professional in this area that I've, I've talked to. Um, if, if companies want to engage you to try to find somebody, the right person for their role, or if uh, tech writers want to engage with you to try to find the right company, how do they contact you? What, what should their uh, method be? You can find me via my website. That's synergistech.com. That's spelled S-Y-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-E-C-H.com. Email is synergistech at gmail.com. And phone is 650-271-0148. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> um, great. Thanks. It, now, is there any a question or topic that we didn't cover that you want to you wanna us to talk about before we wrap it up? Oh, there are a couple. Um, some of the questions that we discussed earlier, um, how long should an employee stay at a company? Uh, that's, yeah. that's a question that I get asked occasionally by people who have stayed too long at places like Cisco and Oracle and HP and 
Um, the answer is if you, you got the same experience over and over and over again, you've got a lot less experience than your competition. I'd say if you recognized your job description from six months ago today, then you're not stretching enough and you risk being, becoming overpaid and being viewed as burnt out. Um, I see people who stay at the same company because it's comfortable, the benefits are good, and they are they have control of their environment and they are still in unstructured frame maker and maybe e-publisher and what they're documenting is not particularly marketable and they're making 150, 160K, which is 40K more than they're worth in the open market. These people hit the market with a big thump and they, they don't work again for six to nine months and some of them don't work again, period. Um, wow. It's, it, it's kind of ugly. There, there are, there are big, there are big risks to getting too comfortable. Um, People also ask me, so I've been a pubs manager. Is it, you know, do, am I doomed to always seek managerial jobs? Won't it be a, won't I be a threat to organizations where I, if I've been a manager and I'm coming in asking to be an individual contributor? I would say not at all. If, if you are clear with the hiring manager that you can manage, but you don't want to, and you explain why, and you are comfortable with the, the offered level of compensation, then you can be very effective, in fact, much more efficient on the job for, for your managerial perspective, and you'll only have one job to do at a time. As soon as managers realize that they've got a 40-hour-a-week individual contributor workload, plus all the politics and stress and meetings of a manager, and They've got more liability because if they've got they blow it at one of those roles or in any capacity, they will be faulted and denied opportunities to to advance and or get promoted. You know, the I just wanted to comment on the the longevity of a of a, or duration of a, a job at a company. Um, I think in Silicon Valley, turnover is particularly high. At companies, since there's so many competing opportunities, I mean, I uh, it seems like every week, um, you know, recruiters will contact me from whatever, just from keyword matches on my profiles, um, and I think it's the same for a lot of other tech writers in this area. Um, I, before coming out to California, I was at at a company for like five years, and there is kind of a numbing effect where you just fall into this rhythm. You don't have to scramble to learn something new. You just kind of go in day in, day out. And then you wake up when you hit the job market and realize that, holy smokes, my skill set is like five years old. Um, so I think that's, it's kind of exciting to not feel like you have to be at one place for forever. I mean, two years at, at one company here is almost kind of a, uh, it may be the average or maybe even above average. Uh, I think a lot of people um, switch every year and a half or something around here. That's been my experience, yes. I think two, two and a half years is a lifetime 
at any one company. But again, it's if your role evolves and you are controlling your destiny and you are staying close to the leading edge without bleeding too much, then stay as long as you like. Um, it's if if you're evolving. If you're not, if you're just going back and back, back and forth in a monotonous way and, and marking time, that's that's truly dangerous. Um, the comfort might be the comfort's temporary, and, and the market will catch up with you. In fact, if, if you do want another job, you will you will pay the piper, and it's it doesn't. Um, sound credible to hiring managers or to recruiters or anybody these days to say, I used to make this much, therefore I want this much more. No, no. It's what it's what you can add in terms of the value. Just because you did make this much doesn't mean you're worth that much tomorrow or even 10K less tomorrow. Uh, I thought you mentioned one other topic there that we wanted to hit on, but I can't remember if you... It was, I, I would like, love to talk about um, the, the biggest bugaboo that this recruiter encounters next to off-site <laughs> remote, the demand for remote work, and that is NDAs and, and how they affect ah. tech writing samples. I, I think your portfolio is your passport to job opportunities and the quality of your writing and the quality of the, um, the organization and so forth, as well as the depth of the treatment of the, of the content, of the subject material. Um, and if you come to me and say, well, I've done, I've done lots and lots of API writing samples and they're all under non-disclosure, under NDA constraints, I say, you know, that might have worked in the 90s, but it doesn't work today. You have many, many options. First of all, you can ask your former employer or client for permission to excerpt some of the, the NDA-affected documentation that you created. Most of that is not going to be giving away their trade secrets. If they don't give you permission to excerpt certain kinds of documentation. And I'm, really what I'm asking is a chapter or two that's procedural and a chapter or two that's reference and a chapter or two that's conceptual and a table of contents or two and my oh my if you ever did an index one of those two. Um, that's enough of a portfolio. If you can't get that, then take soft copy do some search in the place and replace product names and stuff that they're going to mind sharing with the world with the names of Disney characters. Basically, replace it with something that's not going to be dangerous to an outside audience. Another option is simply to redact with black <laughs> marker and you know, the, the acrobat equivalent, of course, um, over terms and functionality that the former employer or client is sensitive about. And another option is write your own NDA and say, okay, Mr. Prospect, employer or client, I will share these with you, but first you have to sign this NDA. And this NDA says that you absolve me of, you will read it and you will destroy it. And you will absolve me of any um, 
responsibility for this getting into the wrong hands. How does work? Do, do um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. But but you need to be solutions oriented. If you just stop and you know put your arms on your hips and say, "So there, I can't show it to you," you lose. Uh, have you ever had any experience where a tech writer just basically uh, uses confidential material um, as a portfolio, and the the hiring company sees it and freaks out and like calls the company and turns the guy in? I mean, does this does this ever happen, or is this just is that uh, fear and paranoia? To my knowledge, that has never happened. However. Lawyers would tell you that it is their right to do that, and big dollars amounts are involved, and most people, recruiters included, don't want to get on one side or the other of that particular shoving match. Um, I think it's essential that candidates for API documentation jobs show API documentation samples but also that they be highly responsible about the, that, what they're doing with the intellectual property of a former client or employer. They need to show their future employer or client that they will be careful with that content. And it's as much a gesture to your future boss saying, I, I want to show this to you and I'm taking these precautions and... I, I know that you're not going to do this, but just in case, I think you'd respect me more if, you know, one job down the pike, I were to exercise the same caution with this content that I create here. And the answer is always yes. How'd you know? Thank you. Well, great. Uh, thank you again, Andrew. This is, um, is always a fascinating topic. I mean... Uh, Andrew has come to our, our Silicon Valley chapter, and he's spoken on these topics, and the room is packed. People have a thousand questions, and it's always a really um, uh, super appealing topic. Um, finally, I, I should just mention, just, for, just uh, out of uh, you know, respect, that when I moved out to this area, Andrew helped me find my job. So definitely recommend him. For companies, for prospective employees, he's a great guy to uh, just who knows the scene around here. Um, and again, synergistic.com is his site, and uh, I'll list that contact information in the email. So thanks again, Andrew, for this podcast. My great pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. Appreciate this.